0: Well, our sermon text this morning is from the Psalms. We usually go through the Psalms in order on the first Sundays of the month, with some exceptions, and we are up to Psalm 73. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 73, that'll be our sermon text this morning, and if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Give ear to the Word of God. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. And he writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue against uh, struts throughout the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? is their knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Uh, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, "I uh, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." But when I thought how to understand it, this seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish in ignorance, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Amen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask once again that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding into these things. Be with me as I speak and be with all of us who listen. Give us by your spirit eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm guessing you probably have a handful at least of the psalms that jump to mind. If I were to say, what's your favorite psalm or what are your favorite psalms? Uh, A lot of people, Psalm 23, with obvious reasons, comes to mind. Well, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms in the whole book. I know you're not supposed to pick favorites. The whole Bible is God's word, but Psalm 73 has always been one of my favorites for a long time. And I have to admit, as we went through our study of the Psalms on the first Sundays, uh, I kind of had one eye on this one. I sort of circled it in the calendar, not literally, but I saw it coming closer and closer and kind of looked forward to it in the one sense and also was kind of petrified by it on the other. You know, the Psalms that are very familiar or meaningful are the ones, any any text of scripture, uh, you just don't want to mess it up. You know, it's like you love it so much, you're almost afraid you're not going to do it. Begin to do with justice, and so Lord willing, we'll be edified by some time in this psalm this morning. But um, what, if you like Psalm seventy-three, like I do, what makes it stand out from the others? Not that the others aren't scripture, not that they aren't important and for our good, but I think in some ways this psalm resonates with some of us uh, because it, it resonates with our experience in this life in so many ways. You know, it's easy to identify with what the psalmist writes here. It's easy to sympathize with what he says about his predicament, about his trouble. And what, what is the psalmist's predicament? What is his trouble? What is vexing him in this psalm? He was perplexed and troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. He was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, there he gives us his confession of faith in God, that God is good. But he also gives us, uh, honestly, his confession of his struggles with doubt as to the goodness of God at times in his life. The Bible, you know, the Bible is not some fairy tale book. The Bible is as real as it gets. The psalmist, uh, thankfully for our sakes, is very honest about his struggles. And in verses 1 through 3, he says this. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant or the foolish uh, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he knows what's true, he believes what's true about God, but sometimes in life he saw things that he just couldn't square up with that and didn't know what to do with it. It shook his faith a little bit at times in his worst moments in the goodness of God towards him. And so his confession of faith is a simple one, I think, one that many of us often echo from time to time uh, in our day as well. We often say God is good. You know, He's good all the time. He's good when he answers our prayers. He's also good when he says no. We don't often say God is good when we hear the word no from God, but, but God is good, a simple uh, profession and confession of faith. And notice he's not just saying in some abstract way that God is good. As true as that is, he's not just saying that God is inherently good in and of himself, although that is true. He's saying more than that. He's saying God is good, not just good, but good to his people. God is good to his redeemed people. He's even good to us who believe. That's what he is saying in this psalm. He's not just good, God is good to us. Amen? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... It's okay for Presbyterians to say amen once in a while, right? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... If you've been a believer for some time... to say For you to say that God is good and God is good to you... It, it's a big understatement, isn't it? It doesn't begin to scratch the surface of how good God is to us. It doesn't do justice to the mercies of God towards us in Christ. And notice here that Asaph, the psalmist, that's his name... He doesn't just say that God is good to every Israelite according to the flesh. He doesn't just say God is good to everybody who professes faith in him or who belongs to the visible church as if God were a respecter of persons or as if one's nationality, ethnicity or religious heritage were some kind of divine winning lottery ticket regardless of one's faith in life. He says God is good to Israel and then he kind of explains or adds what he means by Israel to those who are what? Pure in heart. God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. He's affirming here and telling us that God is gracious and good to those who are of an unfeigned faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even to the genuinely, although not perfectly, but the genuinely pious believer in Christ who seeks however imperfectly to follow him and walk in his ways the ways of his commandments Paul says much the same thing in Romans chapter 2 verses 28 and 29 Romans 2 28 and 29 he says this for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then in Romans 9, 6, he says much the same thing. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. He's saying, not everybody who's descended from Jacob, or Abraham for that matter, are really the descendants, spiritually speaking, of Abraham or Jacob. They are not the sons of the promise, Paul would say. And so Asaph here has in mind not just those who were Jews outwardly and of Israel, but those who were Jews inwardly and by the work of the Spirit. He's talking about genuine believers in the Messiah, in Christ. And so what's his difficulty? He knows that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He knew and he believed that God is good to his redeemed people But again, sometimes that knowledge did not seem on the surface to square up with what he saw and knew in his personal experience, especially when it came to his own life and especially when it came to his observations of the lives of the wicked all around him. Now think about that. You know, all all through the Scripture, we've read it in, in the Ten Commandments actually, the Bible in many ways and in many places tells us something that we should be happy to affirm. God blesses the sincere obedience of his people. Now, he works that in our lives to begin with, so he's really crowning his own gifts and graces. But those who are trusting in Christ for salvation and seeking to follow him out of that, uh, out of that sincere faith, God often blesses, as, as, a, as a good father does, the obedience of his children. The Ten Commandments, what does it say in the Fifth Commandment? Honor your father and mother and Paul reminds us in Ephesians uh, that it's the first commandment given with a what with a promise. and what is that promise? Honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20 right that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. God is giving you a promise and Paul applies it to us today as well that if we if we honor our parents, if we if we do that as children, He will bless us, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because He's kind. God often blesses obedience. Psalm one, the first Psalm. Remember that's that first Psalm in the book. I won't quote it, you know, at length. But He says, "Blessed is the man who, uh, what does He say? Doesn't uh, walk in the way of the wicked. He doesn't stand. He doesn't sit in the council of the ungodly. All these things." But what does he do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he says, what will that man be like? He'll be like a tree planted by streams of living, uh, living or running water, whose leaves don't wither. Uh, he bears fruit in all seasons, and he prospers in whatever he does. So the very first psalm in the book sets the stage and says God blesses his people when you, when you delight in his word out of love for God and meditate upon it and seek to, to obey God's word however imperfectly but sincerely God will what? prosper you in everything you do now ASAP is looking at his life and looking at those around him who didn't follow the Lord and he's saying sometimes it doesn't feel like Psalm 1's promise is coming to, tr- to fruition Sometimes it seems like the wicked are the ones prospering in whatever they do, in their iniquity and sins even, and God's people suffer affliction and lack and want. It just doesn't seem right to him. And I think sometimes if we're honest, we don't think it seems right to us either. And that gives us the same kind of problem and and vexation that the psalmist speaks of here. In fact, in in verse 2, Asaph the psalmist tells us, that his feet had almost stumbled because of this, and that his steps had nearly slipped. This was a real stumbling block for him. This was not some hypothetical abstract thing that he just pondered in his mind. It almost wrecked how he lived. You can see the logic. He's saying, hey, if the wicked prosper and those who serve God suffer affliction and persecution and want and deprivation maybe i'm on the wrong team if 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 doing the easy thing of sin leads to prosperity maybe i should rethink this whole following the lord thing and follow their way it almost caused him to abandon the way of god and the way to life it almost caused him to give up on seeking to live for god at all verse 13 look what he says all in vain this is what he's telling himself all in vain you know for nothing Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? It's like he's saying, what's the use? Where's the blessing? Where's the prosperity? He, He just about came to conclude that living the Christian life and seeking to walk by faith and cleanse his heart and hands, his inward purity as well as his outward actions, that that was worthless and vain. He started to think it's no use living and serving God. Have you ever felt like that? You know, most of us don't admit that kind of thing. Most of us would be not, not like the psalmist. Remember the psalmist said, if I had said thus, if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And yet thankfully he wrote this out for our benefit. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us can say that at one time or another, maybe more than once or twice, we have felt that way. We felt like it's just no use in serving God and trying to do the right thing. That it's no use in seeking to persevere and and doing God's commandments in every area of your life. If that's how you feel now, if that's how you've ever felt, you're in pretty good company. And remember, Asaph says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He wrote this down for our edification and our benefit. But he's saying, I almost was at such an end of my rope that I just said, it's all in vain to serve God. That that was his testimony, almost. And yet he did not do that. He refrained from saying such a thing. Now, in verses 4 to 15, Asaph, our psalmist here, what he does is he spells out for us in some hyperbolic fashion, I guess you could say, his perception of the prosperity of the wicked. And so we're going to look briefly at the apparent prosperity of the wicked in this life. The apparent prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 4, They have no pangs. They have no sorrows, right? Uh, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I know that sounds weird. Uh, but it means they aren't starving. They, they don't lack food. They have food on the shelves. In our day, to call them fat sounds like an insult. He's saying, yeah, they've got everything they need. They're fat Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, the wicked, in his opinion, were living their best lives now. They were having a good old time. Verse 5, he goes on to say, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They never seem to have any problems. They don't ever seem to have to answer for their folly and their wickedness. They never even seem to get sick like the rest of us mere mortals. You know, everybody else is falling sick. They just wander around blithely through it all and don't get sick. Then he says in verse 6, Therefore, because of all that, pride is their necklace. In other words, they're emboldened and encouraged in their wickedness because nothing seems to happen. The hammer never seems to fall. The judgment never seems to come. And so he says their hearts overflow, verse 7, their hearts overflow with follies. It is as if because of the lack, the seeming lack of God's judgments in their lives, they're encouraged to just go on and on further into sin, and their hearts kind of turn out like a factory, sins and follies of all different kinds, and pour forth more wickedness and even violence. This also spills over into their speech. Look at verses 8 through 9. He says, They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression They set their mouths against the heavens. You should be afraid to do that. They blaspheme God. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. So their, their mouth hates God and man. Hates heaven and the earth itself and says all kinds of evil things against both heaven and earth. There's no end of their scoffing. No end of their malice, their blasphemies. They utter in their vanity and pride. They they basically curse God and man with impunity. Nothing seems to happen. And then in verses 11 to 12, the psalmist kind of sums it up and says this. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Reminds me of the words of Romans 3.18 where Paul is citing psalm 36 1 he says there is no fear of god before their eyes you know if you know we looked at this a few weeks ago i think uh, romans 3 a, a good part of romans 3 is kind of paul's summary statement of the doctrine and reality of total depravity of man in sin and that verse i just read that statement by paul quoting psalm 36 is the capstone to that whole section all those things about there's no one no one righteous, no not one, none, none who does good, all that stuff. The, the thing that tops the whole thing off is there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a boiled down, so to speak, summary of human depravity outside of Christ and of iniquity and sin. Now, you can probably see the twisted logic in the mind of the wicked here. The wicked and the unrepentant, they go on sinning before God. They don't see any judgment forthcoming. In fact, they really see the opposite of judgment coming, don't they? Why? They're prospering. It's almost like the worse they get, the more God seems to bless them and make them prosper, both financially and, and otherwise. And so they kind of tell themselves, how can God know? He must not know or he must not care. Because the worse I get, the more he seems to be ignoring it or positively blessing me for it. And so they're they're really denying God's omnipresence, his omniscience. They're saying that God either doesn't know or doesn't care. He doesn't take notice of these things. Or they're denying his holiness and his judgment. But what does the Bible say about that? Does God know? Does God see? Look at Hebrews 4.13. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The the wicked says, is there knowledge in God? Does God know? God knows. He sees everything. In fact, it's, it's kind of a startling way for the writer of Hebrews to say it. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. They're seeing everything? Then they're seeing everything. All of our sin and iniquity and wickedness is as an open book, as a naked uh, and exposed person in the eyes of God. He sees every last thing that we do say and think in all of its wickedness. No creature is hidden from his sight. No, not one, not you, not me, not anyone. In fact, the writer of Hebrews warns us that all are naked and exposed in the eyes of God in other words, God knows and judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Not just our words that everybody else can hear. Not just our outward actions. Not just the things that other people can see. Even our thoughts. Remember the Tenth Commandment? No covetousness. Now you, you might be able to tell if someone's covetous or you know by, by seeing how they act and talk. But God sees the covetousness behind our other sins where we don't. He sees all those things and will bring even those thoughts and intents of our hearts into judgment. Now, the last thing that the psalmist says here about the apparent prosperity of the wicked is in verse 12. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches. You know, the word behold, we don't use that very often, but behold, like get a load of this guy. See what he is like, see what the wicked is is like. Despite their wickedness and their oppression of God's people, he says, they are always at ease. They've got their feet up. It's not even hard for them. And they increase in riches. They just seem to get away with everything. And not just get away with it, but they seem to prosper despite their wickedness against God and God's people. Now, all of this, the psalmist tells us, began to take a toll on him. Back in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist says that his feet, what, had almost uh, stumbled, his steps had nearly slipped. And why was that? He confesses to us uh, that he was, quote, envious of the arrogant or the foolish in verse 2 and 3. And why was he jealous of the arrogant or foolish? Precisely because he saw, what, the prosperity. He says, saw, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw it with his own eyes and that's what made him envious or covetous or jealous of him. Now that, that Hebrew word in that text that's translated as prosperity here in the ESV is actually the Hebrew word shalom. It's not the word for riches, although he talks about that. It's the word shalom. It has the idea that word does of peace. In fact, that's the Hebrew word most commonly translated peace in the Bible. It has the idea of peace, of wholeness, of peace of life, of prosperity, even of the blessing of God. When you have the shalom of God, that's what you have. Uh, This is not typically a word that you would expect to see associated in the Bible with the wicked. Shalom for the wicked. In fact, Isaiah 57, 21 says, there is no peace, says my God, for whom? The wicked. You know, Rob talked about cliches. We say, no rest for the wicked. It comes from the Bible. It's no peace for the wicked, but it's not a cliché and it's not meant to be funny. There is no peace, no shalom for the wicked. But it doesn't always seem that way to us, to our perception, does it? But I think Psalm 73, one of the lessons of this psalm is appearances can be deceiving. They can be deceiving. So the psalmist looked at his own life As we often do, he looked at his own afflictions, his poverty, and then he looked around at the wicked around him who were living it up and prospering, and it tempted him, it caused him, to envy, to covet, to be jealous. Now we know again from the Tenth Commandment that covetousness, envy, is sin, and so covetousness in general is certainly forbidden us, but how much worse is it when the people of God not just covet, but they covet the life of the wicked, of all the things for us to be jealous of and covetous of, how awful is that, that we at times are tempted by the covetous, by covetousness of the prosperity of the wicked. But when we get this way, we're coveting a false peace. We're coveting a false shalom, a, a really a false prosperity, as we're going to see in the latter half of this psalm. Look at some of the bad fruit that comes from such false things, from from coveting such false things and a lack of contentment in what God has done in and for us. It causes us, like the psalmist here, it it causes us to conclude that it was all in vain, that we kept our hands and hearts clean. Living for God, it was was a waste of my time is what we are taught to think when we think of things the wrong way and, and are jealous of a false prosperity. You know we've, we've been looking at 1 Timothy, and we're up to chapter 6, if you've been here in recent weeks. And we've looked at a number of things that Paul says in 1 Timothy about godliness. He says in 1 Timothy 4.8, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, the blessings of godliness are not just for later. God, God showers blessings upon us by his kindness and mercy in Christ here and now also, for godliness. Paul also says that godliness, chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's almost like he's saying godliness with contentment is great prosperity. It's like you're having it all, but when we lose sight of that, it can cause us to stumble and start to think that it's just no use to serve God. You know, it's not a new thing, it's not even the only time in the Bible you'll see that, in the, uh, in the book of Malachi the people in the, the prophet Malachi's day they fell into this very same sinful way of thinking they went further than the psalmist did even not only were they robbing God of, of tithes and offerings for his house and they were suffering lack and robbing themselves of God's blessing as a result but they also went a step further than that they found it vain to serve the Lord they found it to be in vain or vanity Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 says this. God is speaking through the prophets of the people. In Malachi's day, God says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, like, it's like a back and forth. God's, God's kind of giving their side of things. But, but you say, the people, How have we spoken against you? And God tells them. You want to hear it? I'll tell you. He says, You have said... It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant, same word, blessed. We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only, here it is again, prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. he goes on to say, there are some who fear God in Israel, and, and he blesses them for it. But many of the people in Malachi's day had basically thrown their hands up in the air and ceased serving God from the heart. One of the ways that showed was in their robbing God of tithes and offerings. It wasn't the only thing. The worst thing wasn't just that. It was that they said, it's vain to serve God. I give up. And God called them to account for it, didn't he? They had grumbled against God, saying it was in vain to serve him. What's the profit of it? Uh, rather, they began to call the arrogant blessed. They were living out part of Psalm 73 in many ways. So we've seen the prosperity of the wicked. We've seen that the problem of envying the prosperity of the wicked. But there's a turning point in this psalm, isn't there? Thank, thank the Lord. A turning point in verses 16 to 17. There, something changed. The psalmist's perspective was altered. There he tells us verses 16 to 17 but when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task until until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. When he went into God's house his perspective changed 180. He saw things for the way they really were and the way they really are, between him and also between the wicked and God. It was a wearisome, toilsome task for him to try to figure this stuff out, but only until he went into God's sanctuary. When he went into the house of God, then he saw things the way they really were. You could say that joining in the public worship of God's people in the sanctuary or holy place reoriented his entire perspective, he saw things how they really were in light of eternity. The wicked and the unrepentant in this life may seem to be prospering right now, but this is far from the truth. They may seem like they're prospering, but they really aren't. For the wrath of God yet abides upon them, and God, he says, has set them in slippery places so that he makes them, verse 18, fall to ruin. Remember before, early in the psalm, he says, it's like they have their feet up. They're always at ease. Nothing ever happens. Not so. God has set them in a slippery place. I don't know how many of you were raised back east where it actually has snow and ice and things like that, like I was, but, you know, there's black ice, and you, you won't even see it. You're walking, and you think it's, you're fine, the sidewalk's clean, and what happens? You slip and fall and hopefully don't injure yourself. You, you look silly if anybody... If you fall, you look around, who saw me? You know, you're in a slippery place. Well, in a much more serious way, God puts the wicked <laughs> in a slippery place. That, that, that place of prosperity is like a trap. They're just waiting for the fall that is sure to come. Now, see how important here the worship of God's people together on the Lord's Day every week is to our well-being. See how it reminds us of the truth of God's word and the reality of eternity. How often during the week are you, are you made to think of eternity and the way things really are between God and his people and God and the wicked? Most of the time we are too busy with our work, our entertainments and whatnot, that we're, we're distracted from those kinds of thoughts, but not when you come to church. At least it shouldn't be. When you come into the Lord's house on his day, One of the effects of it should be to change and reorient our thinking back to the way it should be. See how much harm we do to our souls and the peace of our own hearts and minds when we don't diligently attend upon the worship of God and the preaching of his word on his day. It may seem like a small thing, but it adds up because we start thinking like the world, and we start thinking even like the psalmist did for a time before he went into the sanctuary of God. And I always think of this. You know, think about this. How many churches do you see around that fashion their worship around worldly entertainment, which does nothing to remind us of the holiness of God, the reality of eternity, the future judgment of the wicked, and the eternal blessedness of the redeemed? It, any worship that fails to do those things doesn't live up to the definition of worship at all. And it's not the kind of worship the psalmist walked in on. And had his life and mind changed by. Now the psalmist reminds himself and us that God has truly set the wicked. What does he say? In slippery places and makes them fall to ruin. It brings to mind for me the words uh, of Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35. Deuteronomy 32 35 where it says this. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. The King James Version puts it this way, a little bit more dramatically. It says, their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. You know, the wicked, we read this in, in Second Peter and elsewhere, the wicked are always telling themselves, where is the promise of his coming? Now, I keep hearing all about, now nobody hears it these days, I keep hearing about the judgment of God and, and, and hell and condemnation. Where is it? You know, it's kind of that picture of the person, I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but you hear stories where somebody says, if there's a God, let him strike me dead with a lightning bolt right where I stand, and what happens? As far as I know, no one's gotten struck by a lightning bolt. But they take that to mean that God doesn't care, or that there is no God, or there is no judgment. And they fool themselves in in doing it. God says, their foot shall slide in due time. Whose time, who sets that time? God does. The day of their calamity is at hand. To them it feels like it's way off in the future if it ever would come. God's saying, it's at hand, it's at the door. And then he says, the things that shall come upon them make haste. What a frightening, sobering picture of the judgment of the holy God against the wicked that that is in that verse of scripture, that verse I just read from Deuteronomy 32, you may know, was the sermon text of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's the most, I, I want to say arguably, but it's probably not even needed to say that. It's the most famous sermon in American history. They used to teach it in public schools, if you can believe that. And if, you know, if you have a copy at home, if you have the internet, you can go online and look up a copy and read it. It is stunning when you read it the, the description of, of the judgment of God from that text uh, you know many have said that that sermon which they say Edwards delivered you think I'm boring Edwards delivered it from a monotone I, I at least looked up once in a while apparently he looked like this I think he had trouble reading in his older age and just read it monotone word for word and people were screaming they were crying out what do I have to do to be saved Right? People, people credit that sermon by God's grace with being used by God in part to spur on the Great Awakening in the 18th century in New England. You know, it's a, it was a remarkable exposition of the judgment of God and the reality of hell. Edwards in that sermon says things like this, There is nothing that keeps the wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. When he says pleasure, he's talking about God's good pleasure. His own, to us seemingly, arbitrary will. Because God just wants to. The only reason they're not in hell now is because God hasn't decided, so to speak, to throw the switch. But it's going to get thrown. He says this also. This one always stuck with me. He says, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Almost every natural man that hears of hell, and how many don't even hear of it, flatters himself that he shall escape. Well, that won't happen to me. That happens to other people, but not me. That's how the natural sinful mind works. And so if you're outside of Christ, if you're still in your sins and unbelief, uh, don't presume upon the grace of God and his patience and long-suffering. You will not escape the judgment of God unless you repent and turn to Christ by faith. Your foot, as that text says, will slip in due time unless it is standing on the rock, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. And what does the psalmist say about us as believers today? You know, he gives us the right view of the, of the prosperity of the wicked, but he also wants us to have a right view of God's people, of his redeemed as well. He reminds us that God really is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In the rest of the psalm if you look at verses 23 and following he says God is always with us God always holds us by the hand he says he guides us or guides me but he's talking about us too he guides him with his counsel and in verse 24 afterwards you will do what receive me into glory what a contrast the wicked their foot is going to slip in due time they are going to fall to everlasting ruin But if you're a believer in Christ, no matter how humble, no matter how afflicted you may be, God will guide you all your life and then receive you into what? Glory. We can't even comprehend what that means. One day you will never again be jealous or envious of the prosperity of the wicked, but they should be envious of you now. They should be the ones who are envious and coveting, not you if you're a believer in Christ and then lastly he says that God himself is the strength of his heart and his portion forever the wicked aren't prospering they never do because they don't have God they have God against them their foot is going to slip in due time I hope that is no one listening to my voice right now but if you're a believer in Christ you have God you have God as your portion and you will be with him in glory for all eternity by his grace in Christ. Look at the last verse of the psalm. He kind of sums it up. Verse 28. As for But as for me, it is good to be near God. For the wicked, it's not good to be near God. But for the believer in Christ, it's good. Same word he started the psalm with. It's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Which is what he does here in this psalm. Amen.